0: What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. It's the second time Paul says certainly not here in this passage. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. I've just read to you Romans 7, 7 through 13, but let me now read to you verse 5. There Paul says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit to death that's kind of an interesting passage the law was given to us among other things to restrain our sinful behavior it was meant to in a sense lie over us and put some boundaries around us to places that we were not to go it was meant to sharpen us and sharpen our conscience in order that we might not do those things that are inconsistent with who God is and God's will and God's purpose and God's way for our lives so that we would not tread out into territory or ground That is not under God's blessing, but that we might remain in the life that we live under God's blessing. And so this law is given, among other things, as this restraint against sinful behaviors in our lives. But as it lays over us in that way, as the law comes to us and comes upon us, and it seems is like this restraint upon our lives, what it also does is it defines our sinful impulses the very place where the law begins to press against us, it presses against things that we think, oh, but that's something I want to do. We start discovering that our lives stand up and our desires stand up perpendicular to the impress of the law upon our lives. And so this very law that is meant to restrain our sinful impulses in some strange way awakens those sinful impulses. and makes us aware of these impulses. And we find the In a sense, the maddening restraint of the law against the impulses of our flesh, and we feel the impulses of our flesh all the more, the more that we come to understand the law of God. We feel the growing desire to push out just at the point where the law is saying to us, don't go beyond this point. So our flesh is wakened up. It awakens in this way, the sleeping giant of sin and rebellion that lies inside each and every individual human being. So as a result, the law introduces you to the true you. It introduces me to who I truly am in and apart from what God would do in me. And what I am is a strident force seeking and desiring my own thing, my own way, that has a tendency to move into patterns that defy the will and way of God and understands and has a desire to satisfy myself and to satisfy my appetites Those things that are contrary to God and even contrary to the way of blessing and the way of life. Now, religious individuals and the religion of man tries to cloak this truth that the law ultimately works to expose our sinfulness by instead saying that what the law does is the law reveals that we're basically good people at heart. The law shows that we're really aspiring to do the right thing and that somehow it's something we've constructed because we have this moral tendency and we want to go in the right place. Instead of recognizing it's something that God has given and God lays over us, it's something that we've come up with to aspire to being better people because that's really what's in our heart. Our heart is a heart for self-improvement and to get better and that's what's natural to us and that we can take the law and through the law we can climb like a ladder of moral rules to a place of enlightenment and a higher place of personal righteousness and this is really what the law is about and that's how they attempt to use the law and convince us and bring us before the law but that's not how the law works. might to some extent reflect those aspirations but it also teaches us that we don't reach them. We fail to get after them. That those aspirations are fleeting. And they're fleeting, and what remains is the impulse still to do what we want to do and to pursue our own wills and to go after our own appetites and our own desires. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that the law is given in such a way that it's not something that we can follow in order to gain a righteousness. What the law does is it just reveals that we are unrighteous, that we are not going the right way. Here's what we talked about last week, the two ways that people kind of engage the law of God as a result. Because it works as this restraint against us and we feel the restrictions of it and we rebel against it, so we at some point in time find ourselves regularly defying that law and going out beyond those boundaries. And so we see as the law is something to get around and skirt and it's a contest that somehow we want to avoid. We don't listen to it or we ignore it and we press on and so we defy the law. And at the same time, we know that it's reflecting the good that we should be in the ground in which we will be blessed and so on other occasions we go back to the law and we try to use that law in such a way to prove that we're right and that we're good so that we can convince others and we can convince ourselves and maybe we can convince god that we're really good people that are deserving of his reward in fact if we're good enough maybe we'll force his hand and he'll just have to bless us because he will see how good we are and the odd thing is this is how man flips back and forth in fact this is the only way in which the unregenerate man can engage the law he Engage it as this thing that's just repressing me or the basis by which he seeks to gain God's favor by his own effort and his own action? And what I'd like you to recognize is that either way, both of these approaches to the law are selfish and they're sinful at heart. So I want you to pay attention to how Paul is addressing the law and the people's response to what Paul is saying. I told you last week that Paul now has turned and he's actually addressing the believer And I think that's the case, although I think as well there is a mix of him addressing that Jewish legalist that's there before him and maybe that Greek moralist, and they're hearing something that Paul is saying as words that unsettles them because they appreciate the law. They know they don't always follow it, but they know it's the path to them becoming better people and proving themselves to be better people. And so in verse 7, they say to Paul, Look, if if what you're saying, and by the way, they're abusing the law in the very way they've talked about it. They just have a habit and a pattern of abusing that law. They feel it's restriction and they kind of fight against it. And At the same time, they try to prove that they're good through it. So the protest is in verse 7, and they're basically saying, Paul, if what you say is true about the law, that it aggravates the sinfulness in us, then aren't you saying that the law is a bad thing? Aren't you actually implying that the law is sin in itself? And Paul answers, certainly not. And then Paul gives a conclusive statement about the law. And this is what he says, it's in verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. I want you to remember that. The law is holy, the commandment is holy and just and good. Now I think when Paul is referring to the law here, although we might talk about the law of the conscience that God puts upon all individuals, I think Paul is actually here referencing most specifically the law, those Ten Commandments that we read in Exodus 20, the moral law that God gave to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai to demonstrate that Paul will reference one of those laws in his own story. We'll talk about the last commandment, the commandment that says, Thou shalt not covet and apply it to himself. It's important for you to understand that in those Ten Commandments, God was revealing truths about himself to the people of Israel In particular God was putting to the people of Israel a truth about himself that would lead those individuals and those people into greater maturity it was as if the nation of Israel had come out of their bondage and their slavery and they were infants and they needed to grow up and move on from childhood to adulthood and so when Paul tells his own account and tells his own story he takes us back and he gives this impression of his own life as a child and him moving into spiritual adulthood. And this adulthood comes when he comes before the law. And it confronts him, and it reveals things that he needs to understand. He sees before the law who God is, and in the light of who God is, he sees who he is. And so that's reflected in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. And there we see that Paul is growing up, that he's been a child, and he's not reached the age of accountability, and he's naive as to himself. Self and his understanding of sin and of his own sin and then you see as he's telling the story that is the law brings his naivety to an end when he comes before it and becomes before the command particularly the command that you should not covet then through that law it becomes clear to him that this commandment is one that he's breaking in his own life he sees himself as he's never saw himself before in fact once now that the law makes clear to him in his mind and his heart that he has this malady of coveting in his life, it actually aggravates it, and he sees coveting throughout his life. He sees that he can't control the illicit desires in his own life, and so that sin that had been, in a sense, lying dead or dormant in his life, and he had been not recognizing was there and roiling around, all of a sudden springs to life within him. The knowledge of the law makes him truly see who he is. It exposes him to his sin and exposes him to his own deceitfulness and lying heart. It actually pressed against his conscience and awakened him to an impulse and release that he ultimately dove into all the more. He's no longer a naive child to this condition. He's no longer naive to his true spiritual sinful state. Sin took hold of him. The commandment rose up and put to death that tranquil image that Paul had of himself. So this is what it says in verses 7 and 8. I would not have known sin except to the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I wasn't aware of these things. It wasn't awakened within me. And Paul is again speaking autobiographically in verse 9. I was alive without the law. Well, I was alive once without the law? But then the commandment came, sin revived, it sprung to life, and I died. Here we can see that Paul is kind of recapitulating this life of the child that is growing up in the age of innocence and has not reached the age of accountability. And yet this child that ultimately comes to understand the law, the implications of the law, he meets the God of the law. He recognizes in it his own sin. He realizes he can't control his own sin. He comes under greater condemnation. He moves as a result, in a sense, from childhood and naivety of childhood into an accountable adult. And we say, good enough. That's kind of what we read there. Now, what I want you to see here, and I'm saying this all by introduction, is that what Paul is saying about himself is also not unlike the experience that the nation of Israel had before God when they came before the law in Exodus 19 and 20. There, Israel too was like a child and it was brought before God and their God reveals to them the law and in the law they're awakened to their own sinfulness and their own need and the terror of their own sinfulness. As a result, you'll see that they become awakened to their need of a place to go where they can meet with God safely. God gives them the law of the tabernacle after all of that. As they become awakened to themselves and their true accountability before God, they're view of God and their understanding of God brings them into repentance and brings them to recognizing the stunning accountability they have for their own sins. And this is the course that the law always brings an individual when you understand it properly. When in the law you meet the God of the law and God reveals himself into it. So we're going to go back to this question that was asked, is the law sin? And the answer is certainly not. And we're going to go to Paul's response. What he says is, The law is holy and the law is just and the law is good. And so the question for us this morning is, how is the law holy and how is the law just and how is the law good? And we'll take what we've said already in introduction and help us look at this. And here's our answer. And there are two basic points to our answer. Look at them fairly extensively. The first part of the answer we'll look at more extensively than the second. But it's this. The first part of the answer is this. The law is holy and the law is just and the law is good because the law reveals a holy, just, and good God. The law is holy and just and good because it reveals a holy and just and good God. I want you to go back to Israel as they come before Mount Sinai. I want you to remind you that the nation of Israel has been in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. During that time, they've largely forgotten and lost contact and understanding of who is the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is going to reintroduce himself to them so that they know him and understand him. And I want to suggest to you that as God leads them to know him and understand him, so they understand themselves and their true need, he's going to bring that to a head and he's going to bring that to a point of maturity when they become, as a nation, come before Mount Sinai. What Paul says... And Romans chapter 7 is autobiographical, but it also is a reflection of, and he's engaging the Jews in their own journey, in their spiritual journey. And it's found in this experience. Upon the time in which God first comes to the nation of Israel, and he begins revealing himself, you think of the nation of Israel like this infant, and their impression of God is God has come to deliver us, and God has come to rescue us, and God is the one who will protect us. And we'll see how God does that end. By the way, when I was a little boy, that's my impression of God as well. God was a deliverer and God was a protector. When I would go to bed at night, I would ask God to watch over my whole house. I'd ask him to put an invisible bubble around us so none of the bad guys could get in. And he would keep us safe from all of the bad guys. And part of the reason I wanted that was I had a pretty sublime life and I didn't want it interrupted at all, right? I wanted to be able to go to the next day to play with my toys the next day. So keep those bad guys away from disrupting all the good that I'm experiencing in life. That was my approach, that was my understanding of God. And think about it for a moment, the nation of Israel. As God begins to make himself known to him, he comes to the nation of Egypt to release Israel from their bondage, and God sends a series of acts upon Egypt in order to loosen their hand upon the Jews and release them. And so he sends a series of plagues and judgments upon Egypt. The the Nile turns to blood, there's a plague of frogs and a plague of lice and a plague of flies and there's pestilence that comes upon their livestock and there's boils that come upon man and beast, a plague of hail that's mixed with fire and a plague of locusts and a plague of darkness that sweeps over all the land and finally, God brings a judgment where all the firstborn children of the people of Egypt die. Now here's the interesting thing in all those plagues, None of those plagues come upon the land of Goshen. During all that time, the people of Israel, where they live and where they're living in Egypt, and by the way, the Egyptians left them alone because they didn't want to have anything to do with the Israelites other than have the Israelites work for them and be slaves for them. They thought of the Israelites as the impure ones. All this judgment comes upon the Egyptian people in the Egyptian land, but the land and the Jews themselves don't experience. And what do they come away with? god is rescuing us and god is protecting us and god is putting his bubble over us and keeping us safe and he's dealing with all these bad guys all these bad people because he's going to deliver us and then the the day comes when they're released from their slavery and they go to the red sea as god directs them and As we know the story, the Egyptian army is coming down upon them. And as the Egyptian army is coming down upon them, a pillar of fire comes down between the army and the people of Israel. And at the same time, there's this great wind that comes that pushes back the waters of the Red Sea. And the people cross over the Red Sea. Here's an interesting thing. There is nothing in the story that indicates that the people were feared with fear or that they were trembling. It was if God sent over them a sense of peace sense of serenity that he was providing their way of escape and he was still protecting them from the bad guys and they come across on the other side of the red sea and when they get over the red sea they rejoice and they sing praises and then god brings them to the waters of merah that are bitter and god provides a way for the waters to be healed so they can drink out of the waters and he delivers that i'm the lord who heals you and and the, god begins to pour manna down from heaven to feed them he's a provider he's taking care of them and god actually at nighttime covers them from the cold of the desert with a warm glow of his Shekinah cloud as a fire by night. And the daytime and the heat of the sun coming upon him, That same cloud comes over the nation as a shade, shading them. What do you think their idea of God is? God's a protector and God's a provider and God's a rescuer and he's watching over us. They're in their infancy, in their childhood. And it's a good thing to know that God is not done revealing himself to them. God takes them out Sinai and now things change. Prior to this, we don't see them trembling. God is always on their behalf. God's always protecting them from the bad guys and providing for them from the bad situations in life. Then they come to Mount Sinai and everything changes. At Mount Sinai, God comes to the people and instructs Moses, tell them to clean themselves and wash themselves because in three days, I'm going to come before you. So all the people have to make themselves ritually clean and God instructs Moses that time to put boundaries around the mountain because whether they clean themselves or not, if any of them come upon the mountain, <laughs> that I'm going to reveal myself to them because I'm going to come down and I'm going to reveal myself. If anyone comes upon that mountain, they'll be put to death. Then God comes on day three and he comes in a thick cloud and he descends upon the mound. From the cloud, there are flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder that are heard. And then we're told that there's a supernatural blast The eerie blast of a blaring trumpet that is roaring out over the ears of people from the mountain as God reveals himself. And then we're told they experience a whole new sensation before God because we're told in Exodus 19 that the people began to tremble. And as they're trembling, all of a sudden, there's fire and smoke that comes down and begins to billow upon the mountain. And the earth shook and it quaked and it trembled. And all these things are taking place. These are new experiences before God. And then God speaks, and he speaks the words of the Ten Commandments. And now the people have a complete dread that falls upon them at the voice of God. Exodus twenty eighteen tells us that once God had spoken, this is what the people say. All the people, what the people did, all the people saw the thundering and the lightning and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, They moved and stood afar off. They ran. They hightailed it, and they got at a distance because God was to be feared. They retreated in fear, and then they spoke to Moses, and they said, Moses, you speak to us, and we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Don't let him speak anymore. you be the one to listen to him. They're filled with a sense of fear and awe, Moses says in verse 20 of Exodus 20, don't worry, God has come to prove you. He's revealing you to yourselves in order that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. So let me suggest to you that this experience is the experience God wants to lead us into when he brings us before the law and he brings us before the lawgiver and our eyes are open to what it's saying in our lives. It's an awareness they brings to us. In a sense, the Ten Commandments, so we'll go there for a second, they're really not Ten Commandments. They're one commandment. They're basically one commandment with ten applications. And the commandment is to know God, is to properly respond to God as God is revealing Himself. When you come before the law, you see that the law represents at its base the very nature of who God is, who God is, a holy God, a just God. It represents His nature, pressing in upon us, restraining sin in us, and at the same time calling for us to respond in a way of life, respond to the light that God is revealing of himself. And so in light of who God is, as he reveals himself, we're not to worship any other God. We are to have no other gods before us. We're to have God only. We're just to have him, that's the myth. And in light of who God is, we're to make no idols for ourselves because we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're not to worship the things that He has created. We're to worship the Creator. In light of who God is, we are to never take His name thoughtlessly upon our lips or to misuse it to the advantage of our own schemes and our own flesh, our own desires, because God is not currency that we can throw around, and His name is not currency that we can throw around for our own purchase so we can get what we want. A lot of who God is, we're to set apart a day to anticipate the rest of eden that he is one day going to restore to us all in other words we're to regularly and weekly recalibrate our lives to the great and glorious end that god is planning and promised for us and we're to live in light of that coming day we're to always live with this eschatological confidence that God is controlling all things and bringing them to a great and glorious end. We're not to sink ourselves into the moment and the hour in which we're living and our world is living in, just scratching and clawing to make one day and the next day and the next day work on their behalf, but in all those things, we're to rest and take our confidence and faith that God is sovereign over all of history. He's bringing it to a glorious end. He's bringing Eden back, and we're to rest in Him on that day. In light of who God is, we're to honor our parents because they're the first emissaries of His provision and His protection and of His providence over our lives, God's providence over our lives. Because of who God is, we're not to kill because God is the giver of life and He's given life to humans, particularly as those who bear His image. And we're not to defy that essential nature. God is life. We're live in ways that express the life that God has given. We're not to commit adultery because God is a faithful covenant-making God. To orientate ourselves to his faithfulness and his covenant keeping nature. And we're not to steal because God is a personal God who gives to each individual as he pleases. I don't take what God has given to them. It's God's initiative and God's desire. Not to lie because God is a God of truth. He's real and he demands reality from us as we come before him. We're not to covet because God is sovereign over where he places us and what he entrusts to each individual as a stewardship. And not to covet what God has sovereignly entrusted to you or given to another person. Instead, I'm to recognize his sovereignty over my own life. So the law represents who God is, how holy God is, how perfect God is, how complete God is. And the law brings me before the one who inspires the law it brings me before this holy and just and perfectly good God and calls me to respond in a way that's reflective that i am meeting him and engaging with him that's why the law is holy and that's why the law is just and that's why the law is good it brings us before a holy and just and good God now listen when you come before that God you not only discover the essence of holiness and justice and goodness, but in his presence, you discover what is unholy and what is unjust and what is not good. And that's the other reason why the law is holy and just and good. Not only because it reveals the one who's truly holy, just and good, because it also reveals what is not holy and what is not just, what is not good. And that's the second point. When God reveals himself, he sets light upon all the things that we suppose are in order and shows them they're not quite in order as we thought. And all the things that we suppose were our condition and our position, and we realize that's not where we're at. We're in great need. So God comes before Isaiah, the prophet, and God reveals himself to Isaiah and his holiness as he sees God in the temple in heaven and the cherubim gathering around and worshiping him and crying out, holy, 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 and the in God's holy presence, Isaiah sees himself, and he recognizes what's the unholy one in this place. It's himself. Woe is me, he says, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's out of the heart the man speaks. The way he's saying, my heart is unclean. My whole life is unclean before this holy God. And, and Daniel sees God, and Daniel is, comes before the presence of God, and Daniel says when he comes in the presence of God that all his Comeliness turned to corruption. In other words, all the things of his supposed splendor, think of it, he's a leader and he's been elevated in the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian kingdom as well. And he sees God and he meets God and all the splendor, the regalia of his office and his position, and maybe the honor that's given to him on a regular basis, he says, becomes like spoiled ruins. God, all my comeliness became corruption in his presence. Job speaks of the time and writes of the time when God spoke to him out of the whirlwind. After God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, Job responds on two different occasions. Job gives an initial response. God speaks a little more. Job gives further clarification. The initial response is this. Behold, I am vile. Behold, I'm vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, twice but I will not proceed further. I won't say anything else. I'm vile. It's kind of like what Isaiah said. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I think I'll shut my mouth. God speaks a little bit more. When God is done speaking the second time, Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's what the law brought you to. That's what the law did to Paul. He saw his own sinfulness. The naivety of his life was obliterated. He could no longer go along thinking that he was somehow in a suitable place and he was just the object of blessing and provision and protection and rescue. And he saw his own deep spiritual moral corruption. It was awakened within him, within the law, because the law brought him before God. Now this is a good thing. It's God revealing the rotten planking of our own self-confidence. It's a good thing. There was a bridge in our community that was wasting away and there was coming a day when that bridge was going to collapse and with it all the automobiles that were traveling upon it and trucks and all the traffic that was upon it was going to collapse with it into the sea or into a river or into destruction. You'd want somebody running a test on that bridge. You would want somebody to find out whether that bridge was good or not or whether it was rotting away. And Every single day, people are treading over some idea of their moral superiority in the law, thinking that it will measure up to God and they can prove themselves and they can gain God's favor and they can gain God's acceptance. They use the law as the means by which they'll gain their salvation and then Christians come along and say, well, no, our salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. I'll receive him alone, but I'll then follow the law and I'll prove God that I can be holy and I'll, I'll gain my own sanctification by following the law and I'll just be better than other people and I'll take my measurements and God brings you before himself in the law in order to show you that you're walking on rotten planking. It's a rotten bridge you're walking over. It's going to collapse and it's going to fall. You need to put your feet firmly on the only provision, and that provision is Jesus Christ. And so wonderfully, after God gives these laws to Moses and he brings Israel to this reality and this understanding, Moses is then given instruction on how to construct the tabernacle where God will meet with people. And how to provide the priest that will be the mediators for the people. And what are the appropriate sacrifices to be offered to atone for their sins? We look at it and say, oh, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because he's come and he tabernacles among us. And he's our priest that's our mediator between God and man. And he's the sacrifice who suffered and died for our sins. And we can lay our hands on him. Recognize he's died for us, but how will we do it? with any true recognition unless we see our own sinfulness. Then I'm pressing, oh, Jesus, you and you alone, you are my salvation, and you alone are my sanctification and holiness, and I will not go back to the law to prove myself. The law proves me, and what it proves is that I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of a Savior, and I'm in need of a sanctifier to make me holy. I'm in need of Him, because apart from Him, I'm just treading on rotten planking. So, the child goes to bed at night and he prays for God to protect him or her from the evil world outside their home. He prays for God to watch over and keep them from all those bad people and bad guys. And that's all good and well. That's a good prayer for a little child to pray. But God is going to have to take that child before his law one day so that he or she will see and discover that there is much to fear in their own bed. There's much to fear in their own hearts. That the supposed goodness and fitness of themselves is not true. That they can't just blithely keep going on to live for the next day to just simply enjoy themselves. And God is just watching over them. But they need a Savior who will save them from the depth of their sins. Now, can I tell you something? Don't rush to show your children those things. Don't go and use the law as a club over their heads. Teach them the law. Give them the law. And after you teach your child the law, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say what Israel said. These are things we're going to do. They're going to say, I can do that. I'll follow those rules, and then I'll be a good boy and a good girl, and they'll toddle off from your presence. Let them do it. Give them the law, and let them toddle off with that confidence. Let them set off with that ambition. Let them skip away under the command of the law for now. But as they do, you pray that there will come a day when they see with a force that you can't create, the lawgiver, the holiness and the justice of that lawgiver, and before that law, they see their own corruption and their own sin. And they'll come to a moment when they see a holy God and they will tremble within themselves and all they thought about themselves and all their naivety will die away. Those sins that they had not accounted for will be made known to them and become exceedingly sinful in their eyes. And then the law, the holy and just law, will do a good thing for them. It will require them to find somebody else who has perfectly kept the law, and someone else who has met all of its demands, and someone else who would take their place and suffer for them on their account for their sins, Someone else to save them from the sentence of the law and live in them. Live in them the glory and the greatness and the goodness that the law represents. You pray for that. Then, in your own life, you look and see whether you're not coming before the law and defaulting back to that same naive notion. God, you saved me and I can take him from here. You're, in a sense, living in a kind of spiritual infancy in your own Christian life. Thinking that, well, yeah, he saved me and he died for me, but now he's just my protector and my rescuer. And then I go on here and I charge ahead to show that I'm morally superior and I can handle this myself. You need to meet the law and the lawgiver and you need to confront the reality of it. God's holiness and God's justice so that you're stripped away of every note of self-confidence going forward in your Christian life. So you're just trusting and clinging to the one who's given his life for you and trusting that he'll work in and through you to bring you into his holiness. And then the law will have done a good thing for you as well. So then the law is holy, and the law is just, and the law is good. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. A note of reality that we must face. Oh God, how often we go back to these things you've commanded and seek to cover ourselves in those things as our standing before men and others and even before you as if you'll approve of us now because of what we've done. Oh God, Paul said it, you must say it. I know that that which dwells in my flesh is no good thing. My confidence before you is not in these things, but in the one who kept all these things perfectly on my behalf. My confidence is not in my performance by my own flesh and my own effort, but in the life He gives when I give up on myself and I claim Him, His power, His presence, His life. Oh, God lead me into that mature perspective and let me grow, let me grow in light of that and for our children, mercifully take him the same way in your timing, with your hand upon them for this purpose and this end, show them their sinfulness, the depth of it, so they might praise and love a Savior who bore it all on their behalf. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.